brings me straight to our first speaker, Sophia Frentz, who's a PhD candidate at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, studying mitochondrial diseases. But she's never been able to focus on one thing at a time. She's also Vice President of Women in Science and Engineering, Councillor for the Royal Society of Victoria, on the Committee of Free Debate, is a lead tutor at the University of Melbourne, and occasionally freelances. Sophia. Don't worry, this isn't my notes. I wrote my entire talk on the back of a chapter of my thesis, which tells you how well my thesis writing is going. Um, so I'm here tonight to talk about a, uh, a paleontologist called Joan Whiffen, but I'm going to get to why I'm talking about her a little bit circuitously, because I really wanted to come up here tonight and talk about Alan Turing a little bit, because the way we talk about scientists and the kind of stories we tell really shapes how we both envisage science and the science that gets done in the future. And the reason I wanted, like, then that I always want to talk about Alan Turing is that I am very not straight, <laughs> just incredibly, like, among the least straight people you will meet. Um, and we sort of LGBTQI people get one role model. We get Alan Turing. He is the one that we get. He gets passed down to us, sort of handed down, as if we should be grateful that we get even one. And that, you know, thankfully, oh, the straights have passed us down one of theirs, and then they made a film where they hammed up, like, an entire relationship with a woman and Benedict Cumberbatch played him. So, you know, it all ended up fine, really. Um, but we also kind of sanitise the story we tell about Alan Turing as well, right? Because we talk about how brilliant he was. And he was, he was brilliant. Like, he did so much wonderful work during the Second World War, but he was also tortured by his society and by his country until he killed himself. And that's something really important to remember when we pass down that story and say to people like me 10 years ago, like, you know, you know who's a great LGBTQI scientist? That Alan Turing. Ignore the fact that he's white male and, like, well off to start off with. He's just like you. And it's like, I, I don't want to kill myself. I just, I, I don't. Like... And, but his story is still passed down to us and it said, you know, be grateful. Be grateful of the fact that you have all these wonderful female science role models who all died at early ages because they, like, dealt with x-rays and, like, discovered radiation. Like, be so glad that you have these role models. Be so glad that you have at least one. And if you belong to more than one minority group, well, then shit. Like, you get Qian Shen Wu if you're from Asian descent. You get Mae Jemison if you're... Um, of African descent. And if you're like me, if you're LGBTQI, you get Alan Turing. And despite the fact that I'm also, like, mentally ill and female, I get nothing else. I get Alan Turing and that is it. Or I could choose, you know, Rosalind Franklin. And it's particularly fun knowing that coming from New Zealand, where our two famous scientists are Ernest Rutherford, who, like, baller, I will get onto him later, um, but also Morris Wilkins, the guy that facilitated the theft of Rosalind Franklin's notes. Good job, New Zealand. And look, you can look any of these scientists up online and see what their lives were like, see who they represent, see why they're important to people. But what you can't look up is the feeling of being 8 or 13 or 15 or 23 and not seeing anyone like you anywhere in science. The feeling that you love this one thing with all of your heart and there is no one like you out there. And that's why I've brought you Joan, because her story is really, really fantastic. 
because the stories we tell about science are often steeped in privilege, and Ernest Rutherford is a fine example of that. Like, boy from Nelson split the atom, but damn, he was well off. Like, he just, he went to a private school, he got all of the trappings, he was white and male and straight, and then he split the atom, and it's like, well, splitting the atom is amazing, like, that's great. But no one who came from, like, any kind of, like, non-privileged background, if he didn't have any of those, like, white, rich, male, straight, um, able-bodied. Like, he wouldn't have done that. He would never have been given the chance to do that kind of research. And I could have spent years looking for another sort of um, LGBTIQ, female, disabled scientist. But people like me don't make it past being students. And we haven't, historically. And the stories I want to tell you are the stories about people who haven't discovered anything particularly important. The, people, the stories I want to tell you are about Fiona Wilson, who spent her entire masters figuring out the rate of speciation of a species of stonefly along a lake in Southland, which is like the definition of niche. Like, that is about as niche as you can get. And she didn't finish her masters because she got divorced and because that really triggered her mental illness. And she's gone off and she's done another masters and she's starting another PhD and she's amazing. But like, She's who inspires me to get out of bed and to keep going at science because she didn't complete a master's, but she kept going at it. She kept running at this institution that doesn't like us at all, that sort of says, oh, you know, look, I get that you're smart, but you're, you're kind of a girl. So, like, maybe don't. But because Fiona didn't ever really prove the rate of speciation and never published her master's thesis, and really no one cares about stoneflies, um, I bought you Joan. So Joan Whiffen was a New Zealander. She didn't complete any high school after the age of about 15 because her father thought higher education was wasted on women. At the age of 16, she joined the Air Force in the Second World War, which makes her one of Turing's contemporaries. But uh, I really doubt that they crossed paths because, you know, she didn't have any high school after about a year 10. Um, and in the early 70s, she went to a mineralogy and fossils class, just one of those public classes that they hold. She had no more formal education, and she loved it. And then in 1975, she found the first dinosaur fossil in New Zealand. And it was pretty much her going to a valley in New Zealand and going, looks like a dinosaur. Probs is. She got it. Turns out it was. I think the key thing here like, particularly, like, Joan is amazing. And when you listen to her talk, you can hear that she loves what she does. She talks about finding that first dinosaur fossil. And she says, I was so imaginative. I could see them in front of me. I, like, found this fossil when I knew there had been dinosaurs here before me. And New Zealand's, like, some shitty little islands, right? Like, sea goes up, sea goes down. No one thought that there were dinosaurs in New Zealand before Joan found them. She was given an honorary doctor of science from Massey, which she thought was a bit rubbish because she didn't need it to find dinosaurs, so she didn't need it now. Um, and that was fantastic. And it's just really telling that when I was a child, and like all of my childhood books were about dinosaurs, right? Like I had a bedtime story about the iguanodon that I made my parents read me for years. Like the book I knew back to front was Dawling Kindersley Dictionary to Dinosaurs. I don't know why I'm studying mitochondrial disorders. I am a dinosaur girl through and through. Um, it's quite telling that when I was a child, there was still dispute 
about whether dinosaurs had ever lived in New Zealand. Despite the fact that Joan had been continuously finding dinosaur fossils in New Zealand since 1975, found the first land dinosaur fossil in New Zealand in 1986, the stories we get told, the stories that get passed down to us, are not stories that include people like Joan. They're not stories that include people like me, or people like a lot of people that you will see in undergraduate classrooms. But the really important thing I feel about Joan's story is that it shows you that science isn't your education or your like degree of passing tests. It's, you know, it's like that song. It's 10% luck, 20% skill. 15% concentrated power of will. And definitely 50% pain. Oh, God. I think the thing that concerns me about the story of Joan is that she was always sort of painted as, like, your Kiwi battler. Like, we, we have a particular way we like our women to exist in New Zealand, and that is they get their hair done and they get the job done and they're normally from a farm. <laughs> Joan was from Havelock, Havelock North, King Country kind of area. She was good. She knew her way around a sheep. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. I grew up, I grew up on a sheep farm. Let's not go there. Um, and the stories we sort of hear, even when we hear them about women, about people who don't belong to a majority in science, I specify in science because I feel like I shouldn't have to remind anyone in the room that women make up 51% of the world's population. If we wanted to take over, we probably could. Um, but the stories we hear are about the good girls, the people who didn't advocate for more change, and certainly Joan didn't exist in the world where there is a need for change. Joan just sort of pissed off to, like, valleys in New Zealand and found dinosaurs. Like, but not all of us have that luxury. Not all of us can, like, wander off to a valley and be like, oh, dinosaur, great. Science complete. Um, a lot of people have to engage a lot of people have to be accepted by the institution to an extent to live within the boundaries of what we are told is acceptable. And so the people that survive to the age where they can change the world, the people that, like, people like Rutherford, people like Barbara McClintock, people that are making the changes that we come here and talk about, they're the good people. They're the people who don't jostle for change. They're the people that don't step out of line and say, maybe science is, like, a little bit sexist sometimes, guys. And because those are the people that not only the institution of academia rewards, they're the people that society rewards. Because, like, being good and being nice is something that society likes. And academia, and particularly science, is like society but 100 years ago. <laughs> but these aren't people like me. They're not people like a lot of people in science. You can't... When you walk into an undergraduate classroom... The people you see in front of you do not reflect the people that we hold up on pedestals and the people we say we should emulate. They do not reflect Darwin or Francis and Crick or even Rosalind Franklin um, or people who have had all of that privilege who have been pushed into a career in science and have really succeeded and like changed the face of science today. They do not look like the science students of today. And by continuing to put those people up on pedestals, we're sending a very clear message to a lot of science students of today that they do not belong. When you don't talk about LGBTIQ scientists, you tell people like me that we don't belong. You tell people like many of the people in this room that they do not belong. It's quite telling that the names and the stories that we tell haven't changed very much since Joan found that first dinosaur fossil in 1975. 
I think it's quite telling that we still rehash the stories about, you know, Francis and oh, Crick just changing, whoever they were, I don't, I don't care. James Watson came here, I nearly went and held up a sign that said Rosalind Franklin was robbed, but I decided I liked my career, so I didn't do that. I think it's really important to remember that, like, the reason I'm telling the story about Joan isn't just because she found a whole bunch of dinosaurs in New Zealand, which is an amazing feat, because, like, if you have ever been into the bush in New Zealand, you'll know how easy it is to get lost, let alone find something. Like, that is horrifying. We all get taught at about age eight how to survive hypothermia. Like, that's, that's the kind of country we have. But it's that she was nothing like her peers. And the science students of today are nothing like the scientists we tell stories about. They're nothing like the scientists that we haul up on pedestals and say, these are the people you should be like. And if we're incredibly lucky, the, the people that we hold up on pedestals, the Einsteins, the McClintocks, the Rutherfords, the Watson and Cricks, they'll be nothing like the scientists of the future. Thank you.